Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? I said that I had questions for you. Good morning, Holly. Well, hi, good morning. Well, I, I can't remember when it was, but you said, I'm just going to sit here and ask a lot of questions. Of oh, Holly. I know I did. That, that. That was yeah. I was being a smart aleck. No. So, <laughs> uh, so we've had some, some significant response both to last week's podcast and to the class that we, I wanted to, I started to say co-talk, but really you carried the ball and you're going to do that again this week because you didn't get anywhere near finished. No, no, I no. It, it's, you know, if we kind of want to walk through this process, which I don't think this class has ever been exposed to something like how do we do a heroine's journey sort of one step at a time, if you will. Um, but yeah, I didn't get through. <laughs> I got through one third of it. So, um, but we knew that going in that we were not going to finish. So. Okay. So uh, uh, this week uh, I am, I am going to really do more of a questioning role, but I, I, I want to introduce what we're going to do this week. Uh, kind of like this. I haven't written it yet, but I'll tell you some of the thoughts I had. Um, there is a doctrine in the Christian tradition. And as you know, I think that it's important to be religiously literate. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to know if you're in a religion, what the tenets and teachings that religion are so that you know what does it matter if that makes sense yeah um so there is a doctrine in the christian tradition that was very very late in developing it's read back into the the scripture um and that's the doctrine of the trinity yes and so I had these thoughts that are not clearly organized, but I want to just throw them out and then we can get to what Ed Edinger says about Mary and the mm-hmm. assumption of Mary and all that sort of stuff later mm-hmm. on. But what I got to thinking was that probably the best, and I'm quoting now Richard Orr saying this, Richard Orr said that the best explication of the doctrine of the Trinity in accessible contemporary language is in a book written by a man named William Franklin, I think. Hmm. And the book is called The Shack. Oh, yeah, okay. The Shack, Mm -hmm. was that made into a movie? Yeah, it was made into a movie. I forgot the author of it, but yes, I read the book also, yeah. Uh, It's not that great literature. I mean, no, it's, an interesting it's just a story. story. Yeah. It's a story. Yeah. But yeah. in the story, there are two things that really stand out. One is that the character of God mm-hmm. is played by a large African American woman. Yeah. And the character of the Holy Spirit is played by a cave dweller. 
mm-hmm. whose name is Sophia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that one of the best scenes in the book is where the main character, whose name I'm blocking on right now, has an he has to go into the cave, yeah, and have an encounter. Mm-hmm. With Sophia uh-huh. about forgiveness, mm-hmm. and it's brutal. Yeah, it's brutal. And so that's that's what I was thinking about when we started thinking about the feminine. Oh, here are these two feminine characters that somebody put as a representation of aspects of the Trinity. Both of them are female. Yeah, for sure. And and Richard Rohr says. This is the best explication of the Trinity you can have in contemporary literature. So, yes, I'll start there someday. Yeah, I think it. I think it is a really great explication of the Trinity. I thought that the language of the movie and the book, however, was um, couched evangelical language. Oh, it um, is. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and I don't want to reject that outright, but I think we also have to name that there is somewhat of a sort of faith agenda there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. And, um, and also, you know, it's, it's interesting when we think about um, who gets to represent who, you know, presumably the, the you know, the, the main character in the movie is a white man and the writer of the book is a white man and we, and who gets to represent someone else's kind of um, image. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is this gets into a whole creative exercise, I think, about the reason why we make God in our image is because we are we want to see God in our image. <laughs> and so to me, God looks like me to you. God looks like you. You know, you know what I mean? Like that I'm being um, general here, but we anthropomorphize God because we need something to relate to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you just, so I think it's a, you know, I think it's a worthy creative exercise that he did that invites a different image of God than our Western culture ha- is, um, our Western predominantly white culture is used to, but I don't think a woman, a black woman as God is surprising to black women. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. That just reminded me there was an interesting show on PBS last night that we called most of about Harriet Tubman, mm. who is called Moses. Moses. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. so good. It he made me. The waters. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Water dancer. Yeah. yeah. Made yeah. me think of that book. I yeah. love that book. Yeah. Yeah. I love that book. Um, it's um, you listened to it or you read the book, The Water Dancer? Yes. Yeah, both. I <laughs> um, I listened to it on audio and the reader of that book is just fantastic. He is just there's pieces where he sings the spirituals that are written in the book. Um mm-hmm. just a, I, I and Tanahasi Coates is just a brilliant mind. So I I positively loved that book and I loved the image of Harriet Tubman or Moses, who really wasn't the central character in that book, but as her sort of mystical encounter. She had a lot, she was portrayed as having a lot of mystical encounters um, with dreams and images that would show her where to Mm -hmm. show up, you know, Mm -hmm. where to go. 
-hmm. Yeah. I was thinking last night that, um, you know, there's been a movement in um, the House and the Senate uh, for some time to have Harriet Tubman represented on coins and money. I think she's on stamps. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think so. Lots of people but, have been on stamps. I'm not good at keeping up with that, but not, yes. But not on money, right? No, she's not on money. She's never been on money. And again, so there you have prejudice at play mm -hmm. against a black person and against a woman. Think about how much effort it took just to get Susan B. Anthony on a quarter. Yeah. It didn't work. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, she has, there's, you know, we, any, anybody who's on money <laughs> in our history is both problematic and creative, right? Um, you know, I mean, yeah, it's just interesting. Isn't Andrew Jackson on, on what dollar bill? I can't remember. Anyway, it just, it's, yeah. I mean, there's just so much reconciling with our own history, how it, it, Clint Smith, who wrote the book, the, how the word is passed. It's an excellent book, um, writes about this difference between memory, history, and nostalgia. Mm -hmm. And his thought is, you know, we have memories that are laced with history and emotion, you know, so our memories have sort of a mixture of, um, uh, of history and nostalgia. Nostalgia is pure emotion. What we wished were true is what we remember, right? What we want to mm -hmm. see, what um, sort of gratifies the ego is what is nostalgia. Mm -hmm. And history is reported facts as they were seen. Um, and he, he asserts that most of our history in this country is nostalgic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most of what we learn about history. So, you know, it's just, I just don't think we hold tension very well. Mm -hmm. We don't hold this kind of, oh, Susan B. Anthony was this and that, you know, George Washington was this and that. Um, we don't hold those tensions very well. So you, you uh, stir something up in me. Uh, you know, I, I got fired from my job of teaching in the seminary. Mm. And I was told that my theology was too aggressive. And one of the things that I wanted to do when I was in the seminary was start a new section of a theology course called Iglotson. And... Um, it would be a seminar for um, doctoral students. And um, I thought it was really brilliant. And, and um, I, it, it was probably another thing that had the faculty dean of school of theology to want to get rid of me. I glotzen is nostalgia spelled backwards. Ah, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> so I wanted to do something that would not be nostalgic but would be really forward looking about, okay, what can we create here that yeah. will be hopeful and energizing? Yeah, but also realistic. You know, I think, I think that is kind of why we avoid the hard is because it's not always hopeful. It doesn't stir hope all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, I think it's really, hard i don't know if it's humans in general or if it's particular to our culture um 
or particular to kind of like um, an optimistic white culture, but um, it's really hard for people to sit in the hard. And I think well, if, if we, if we lean too, if we lean too quickly to hope, we lose the, we lose the learning, you know? So can, can you amplify on that a little bit? Why is it that you think that what we're doing right now and talking about the hero's journey is not hopeful? I do think it's enormously hopeful, but I think it's hard. Okay. Yeah. So I think, you know, on Sunday when we were talking, I, I paused and said, have I got everybody feeling really sad right now? And uh, many people responded, yes. And, and it is because that first layer is about breaking off with a part of ourselves, breaking off from the mother, breaking off from the feminine, right? Mm -hmm. And we're not even through the whole journey. And absolutely by the sort of second half of the journey when we have sat in the dark cave in the womb, if you will, um, there's enormous hope in that, but that whole first half of the journey is a descent is rather dark and rather gr grappling, very, it's wrestling. Right. And so I think it's really easy to kind of want to go quickly through that. Let's just get through these first three things. Let, let's do the descent quickly. Let's go and, and emerge too quickly into hope. And, um, so I don't want to say it's hopeful at the expense of saying that it's not hard, you know, but we've got this idea that hopeful means that it's positive, that it's only positive. And I think that hope is kind of born of struggle, if you will, like hope is the other side of hopelessness. And mm -hmm. I don't know that we can know one without the other. Yeah, um, I, 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 I want to give uh, Jim Finley 150% credit for this because I built it out of hearing a lecture that, that he did. Um, so it's my image, it's my words and all that, but really Jim Finley gets credit for this. And what he says is that in your doing your spiritual work after a while, um, you have this companion along the way. Maybe it's Jesus, maybe it's Buddha, maybe it's Shiva, maybe it's whoever your companion is in the religious tradition that, that you value. For those, um, I mean, no, I'm devoted most of my life to understanding the teachings of Jesus. So you get to a point on this journey where um, Jesus says, um, it's time for you to go. And uh, where? And so Jesus points to this cave opening that's in the side of the mountain over there. And um, the conversation is, we've had a good time up to now. This has been helpful and all of that sort of stuff, but I can't carry you anymore. Mm -hmm. you, I, I can't accompany you. You got to go into the cave by yourself. And Finley said that the... The way that we make religious teaching and theology easy for people mm -hmm. is that we create the illusion that God is in the cave. And if we say the right rituals, do the right word, do whatever, that God will come out and pat us on the head and say we're doing a good job and then leave us alone. Mm -hmm. And Finley says that's such a misreading of what Jesus was all about. 
uh, you're leaving out the whole Jerusalem crucifixion thing there. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) Billy has it, and my language is that we finally, after years or days or hours, get convinced that Jesus is right. We get up, we head for the cave, and we're just about to go in. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, take off all your clothes. Yeah. You can't take anything. You can't take anything with you in there. And that's the hard part. Yeah. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. And that's the moment that we start to look for lots of ways to make it easier. We, we get anxious. But what if I just, can I take my teddy bear? Can I take my, can I take my booze? Can I take my journal? Can I take, you know, I mean, it's. I mean, you've been through the 10 day meditation where you can't really take or do anything. You're clothed. I think you haven't ever told me that that 10 day meditation is naked, but, um, (laughs) but I, but I, you know, I think that that's where we get really anxious is at the threshold and thresholds are always hard for people. Um, you know, so so yes, I mean, just to clarify, I do think it's enormously hopeful. I also think it's enormously hard. I'm going to tell that story, Sunday, if it's okay with you. It's okay with me. Um, there is a, um, you know, I, of course, because I'm doing a lot with philosophy, philo- just philosophical allegories, stories, um, myths come into mind, but, uh, Plato's allegory of the cave, you know, is r- quite literally a descent f- into, and then, and really that his allegory starts in the cave. H- his assertion is that humans live in the cave, but we're not aware that we're in the cave. We're not aware that we're in it. Um, we think the shadows are real. You know, we think that there is no such thing as light. We don't understand the concept of light. So, you know, I think the challenge is to kind of notice that we're in the cave and to do something. And then, so when you consciously then decide to go back into the cave, that's a huge act of, of courage. If we're unconscious and we don't know we're in the cave and we're kind of just, oh, look, the shadow puppets are real. That's my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, we don't ever know that we have to leave the cave. We don't even know that we have to examine it. Um, I think it's the consciously going into the cave that is terrifying without realizing, oh, we've been here before. We just didn't know we were here before, mm-hmm. you know? Well, again, to go back to the, the image of the shack, and I'm interrupting myself, but I'll come back and tell you why in a minute. Go back mm-hmm. to that image of the, in the shack. When, whatever his name is, the main character who is so angry about the abduction and murder of his daughter. Yeah. And rightly so. And he goes, he has to go into the cave, Mm -hmm. which is uh, brilliant on the author's part because that's where he finally, Mac is his name. That's where Mac finally comes to um, to be stripped emotionally, spiritually, religiously bare, and so that's a great great image about that. What I was interrupting myself with is that I had a client uh, last week who said 
there's a podcast you ought to listen to. I'll send you a link up to it. And so I just finished listening to it this morning. And it's a podcast about how evangelical, many evangelical pastors are being driven out of their pulpits today by Trumpism. Mm. Um, and the podcast is um, called The Daily. Ah, yeah. It's a New York Times podcast, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, yeah. it's called The Daily. It's a New yeah. York Times. And it was, yeah. and so people could look it up and they could look, look up that particular episode. Uh -huh. It's it's chilling. Hmm. So they're being pushed out of their pulpits against their will because they don't yeah. align with Trumpism, Christian yeah. nationalism. Interesting. Yeah. 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 I'm sure there's a wrestling going on in the evangelical church of mm -hmm. wh who, who do we want to follow? You know, who, who do we say that we are? Um, gosh. Yeah. That's, and they have to do a really hard looking at how they've aligned themselves politically. Mm -hmm. I think all um, white Christian churches need to. I think that that sort of whisper of um, um, evangelism or nationalism is in almost every mainline church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I should say I have read research that's that says that points to that fact that mm -hmm. there is a whisper of kind of a of, of nationalism, of um, individualism, of racism in most mainline Christian churches. Uh, and, and what gets tricky there is how, how people begin to define what's mainline, you know, mm -hmm. whether that's UCC, Unitarian, you mm -hmm. know, and even in the Methodist church, you've got yeah. divisions among the United Methodists about who's to the far left and who's to the more moderate. I mean, mm -hmm. the Methodist church is about to be split at the point of moderation. Yeah. And so when the new global, global Methodist church really is in full swing, which it will happen in the next couple of months, what remains in the United Methodist church as the label moderate will be the new conservative. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's happened to all the big denominations in the last 20 years. Yeah. This very same split. So it's really ironic. We're drifting far afield, but it's really yeah. ironic because uh, the Methodist church, like most other white churches, split at the Civil War. And um, so the Methodist church got back together in the 1950s. Hmm. And it was called the United Methodist Church because they... Uh, unified with the United Brethren, which are mm. part of the origins of the Methodist Church, and they, they took the United name when the Brethren denomination came. So in the 50s, we became united, and in the 2022, we become the divided. Yep. Yeah. That's what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um. We can so talk on this topic quite a bit. <laughs> so how how um, is that? Is this is our conversation an example of how hard it is to talk about the venom? 
meaning that we've gotten derailed from it? Yeah. Mm, I'm sure it is. You know, I mean, it's the, the via negativa, right? We have to kind of look at what we don't have, look at what we don't, what we aren't. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, in the absence of it, how do we define it? So I am an old white male. What instruction or guidance would you say to me if I want to get my act together about embracing the feminine, what do I need to do? What do I need to read, be exposed to? How do I need to change my thinking? How do I have a makeover? Wow, I can't believe you're asking me this question because it feels rather daunting to answer. Um, so just know that anything I say cannot be held against me. Um, <laughs> I. I think you have to start reading women. Um, and I notice in your literature and what you dive into is mostly men and probably mostly white men because it's probably an affirmation, even if it's radical, it's an affirmation of your own, you know, what you've come to believe. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I would say the same to myself. I have to, if I want to read, I don't know that I think we have to both sides everything. I, I, think, I think I can pretty squarely reject um, the kind of exclusionary nationalism that's rising up in the, Christ, in the Christian right or in the religious right or in the conservative right. Mm -hmm. I can pretty squarely say that I, it's not that I don't want to understand it, um, I think it's worthy to read some of that, some of that, like, how did this evolve? How did this get this way? There's a book called Jesus and John Wayne. That's really good, actually written by a woman about the, um, kind of defeminization and the nationalization of the Christian church. Um, she wrote it, she had published it in 2020, but uh -huh. you know, I, I think, I think that's, you have to start there for every book you read by a man, read another one by a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. Um, I would say for you, because you are, you can go pretty high level, pretty quickly read Catherine Keller's face of the deep faces of the deep face of the deep. All right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I would say read Barbara Holmes race in the cosmos. Um, I've read her mm -hmm. on, on Richard Rohr, probably because she's a teacher through the living school. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, so I think that if we're seeking or longing for that other voice, I need to look for it. And even myself, as I look through my uh, bibliography for my uh, dissertation that I'm trying to finalize, um, mm -hmm. I mostly men. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I had to look, I had to go and look and find the women who were thinking along the same lines that I was hoping to uncover. You know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I would say read Bell Hooks. She's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in your being, so th that's all the head exercise of it, right? Mm -hmm. I think each and every one of us could probably stand to get into our bellies a little more. And to notice what intuitions bubble up 
that we suppress because we're such a good head culture. Mm -hmm. um, notice the belly a little more. Mm -hmm. Just did this wonderful workshop um, called, it was on spiritual psychology and led by a woman who has this whole process called awakening the tree of life. And her whole principle is about how we don't have um, collectively, not individually. And I think I need to make this point really clear on Sunday. Individually, a lot of us have really good examples of the feminine in our life. We might have had a grandmother or a caregiver or a teacher or a mother who was a really great example of the feminine in our life. Mm -hmm. but collectively our culture doesn't embrace it. You know, it does, it doesn't, our culture doesn't make space for the feminine to show up in a really positive way. Mm -hmm. So we can hold her on our shoulders and let her come with us all the time, knowing that our culture doesn't always welcome her. Right. Mm -hmm. But anyway, this woman who does the awakening to the tree of life really talks about getting in touch with the good mother, our own good mother that she's within us, that we have to learn male and female alike to listen to the good mother. And so many of us break off in this culture from the good mother. And um, she has a whole process of how, what that looks like. And it, it was really profound and simple at the same time. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to... Um acknowledge, confess that what you say is absolutely true, is that most of the people that I read, most of the people that I quote are men. I will acknowledge that. And without meaning or sounding to be defensive, I have also been influenced by women like Pima Children and For Ilya sure. Delio yeah. and Jan Phillips and mm -hmm. Judy Canota and mm -hmm. Kathleen Singh. And mm -hmm. so there are Barbara Brown Taylor, mm -hmm. Diana Butler Bass, you know, mm -hmm. there are women uh, who are in my stable of people that I trot out to say, this is true. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are, they are out there and mm -hmm. good. I just started reading yesterday, Kate Baller's book. Mm -hmm. I haven't read it, but I've heard some great interviews with her about, about her book. She's yeah. going to be here. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah, that's great. On a Wednesday night. And uh, the Curly Endowment is paying for that, mm -hmm. which I found out. Somebody said, you need to be promoting this more. I, I think we're just giving money to, the, to help pay for it. Yeah. But I started reading your book and it's really, it's pretty uh, gut-wrenching. Yeah, yeah. It's about yeah. her encounter. With death. Yeah. Yeah, with her body, with her own body, you know. The body and, keeps the yeah. score. Yeah, you know, so to, to, to back you up on what you just said, at, at the risk of sounding defensive, I certainly don't want to imply that you don't read women. I think if we even each of us look at our own schooling, um, most of what we have read in terms of research, theology, credible information is still from men. I do think that's changing. And I see that makes me feel hopeful that there are many, many more voices on the table representing history, representing psychology, representing mythology, 
than just mm -hmm. our sort of standard canon white male of European descent. You know, mm -hmm. even the way research is done is changing. It's mm -hmm. more participatory, it's more action oriented, it's more feminine. So there are changes. Um, I think, you know, I probably read, I was probably pretty ready to read Robert Johnson with a lens of uh, skepticism in the book She. I'll admit that I was ready to kind of doubt it. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and that's a limitation, right? If we go in thinking, is this going to resonate? It's a limitation in maybe receiving the heart of something. Um, let, me, let, yeah. let me give you an example that I just got last night about how thinking like a woman, like a female can mm -hmm. be transformative. Mm. I record and watch Stephen Colbert. Mm -hmm. So I'm a day late in seeing it. Yeah. So last night I watched Monday nights. So we're recording this on Wednesday. So last night was Tuesday to watch Monday night. And Stephen Colbert's guest was Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House. Mm -hmm. First female elected Speaker of the House in the history of the country. Mm -hmm. And at the inauguration, or first State of the Union speech, Stephen Colbert showed a picture of Joe Biden giving the speech and flanked behind him were Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi, two women. Mm -hmm. And Stephen Colbert said, this is historic to see the president, a male, flanked by two females. Won't you be glad when the day comes when it's the other way around and there's a female president flanked by two men in the back? And Nancy Pelosi said, no, it will be one woman flanked by two women. Yeah. <laughs> That's thinking like a woman. Yeah. So yeah. Stephen yeah. was thinking like a guy. Yeah. And she was thinking like a, like yeah. a woman. And even to further her answer, I, I would like to see that um, embodied by a woman who embodies femininity, who embodies the feminine. And that will really be something. Exactly what do you mean by that? Well, we've got lots of examples of women in leadership around the world. Um, some are better than others at embodying the feminine, embodying the, the notion of what I would call interrelatedness, what happens to you happens to me and it matters, right? Mm -hmm. um, have an ethic of care, an ethic mm -hmm. of compassion, um, an ethic of deep listening mm. and an ethic of creativity. Okay, so those are just some I'm gonna show, throw out, right? I think if, so, a, if a woman stands in a man's position and leads like a man, it's not transformative. I see. So uh, you're you're implying, and I would I would agree that many women who achieve places of leadership do so using masculine traits. Mm -hmm. Our 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 culture, as of right now, does not value a woman leader at the high ranking level who leads with feminine values. As of right now, it doesn't mean that there aren't women leaders, and that they, in their own right, have not achieved a great deal. I do not mm -hmm. want to diminish these women who are in leadership, who have worked and, and really stood by themselves to, to have this happen. 
And I'm not mm-hmm. saying they don't bring any feminine values. I am positive they do. But I think broadly speaking, what I see in our culture is not that if I had, if I had um, a side-by-side example of leadership of an entity or institution, one male and one female, I don't think that we would truly value the feminine leadership qualities mm-hmm. over the masculine. So the female learns, well, I got to do some of what the masculine is doing in order to fit here. Okay. So, all right. A woman who comes to mind for me is Joan Chittister. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I, I, I love Joan Chittister. Yeah. I think she's brilliant. I think she's done incredible things. I don't think she embodies the feminine. Would mm-hmm. you agree with that? I, I, from what I listen to in her, no, I think she probably has some untransformed grief and anger. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so I'm thinking, okay, if Joan Chittister had been this embodiment of the feminine that you're talking about, could she have accomplished what she's accomplished because she's worked in a man's world? That's, that's exactly right. And, that, and, and, and I think so. It's really not the fault of the woman. Right. It's our culture that yeah. says you can do this if you embody these characteristics. So I think that's where, you know, I kind of made people feel a little sad on Sundays and saying, we don't have an example of this at the highest level. It hasn't been created. Mm-hmm. Because we've been asked to wear somebody else's shoes. Right. And we're really good at that. So that's Got actually it. also a strength. I would, I'm going right. to broadly say, I think women are better at filling men's shoes than men are at filling women's shoes. Oh, that's so good. Uh, walking in women's shoes. <laughs> you want to change shoes on Sunday? Is that what you're going with this? <laughs> well, it's just such a great metaphor. Um, women are better at filling men's shoes than women are men are at filling women's shoes that's just brilliant it's kind of what makes us a badass to be honest yeah I think what I mean is that um, it's kind of a tunis that we have to embody um, in our culture and it it is a strength and it also needs to be transformed. What is the joke about that came from the, the women's movement in the sixties about women have to learn to do a men's job, but fortunately it- In heels and backwards, basically. It's yeah, like, yeah, dance backwards and heels. Yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah, there's another yeah. line that's true to that. So I, so, uh, I have said that the biggest negative shadow archetype in our culture is white male patriarchy. I and agree. we just have to keep saying it. Yeah, spell it out what that looks like to you. What you see going on in government, what you see going on in Russia, um, it's it, the belief in redemptive violence and uh, I do anything in order to win. And uh, it doesn't matter how much I hurt you in the process. How much of that do you think has to do with um, 
Augustine and his original sin, inherent flawed nature, the flesh associated with the with the woman is responsible mm-hmm. for the fall of man. Mm-hmm. How much of that do you think pervades our sort of thinking? I think it's uh, connected to the, the the really second shadow archetype, which is there's something wrong with you, um, yeah. and it's just inherent in your character, um, and you need to be saved and then the first shadow archetype steps in to say i know what to do about this i can save you i can fix you if you buy into my agenda buy into my regime my program whatever that's yeah that's part of it walking Mm -hmm. in women's shoes as our title for sunday i'm thinking about it (laughs) all right i gotta go all right we went. We covered a lot of different ground today. Yeah. But we, it, I think it's important that we talk about it. Yeah, it is. And, and you know, for anyone who is listening, know that there is hope, but that we do gotta sit in the cave. We gotta get there. You know. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye.